tonight, I'd like to talk about one of the <clears throat> skills that we cultivate and that we employ in our practice of meditation. But before I even tell you which one of these skills it is, I ask that you pay attention to your inner response once I do tell you upon hearing the word. To beware, particularly of thoughts such as, I can't, I don't, or I have none. Or, who knows, maybe the opposite range of thoughts is true for you. So, you ready? (laughs) The skill is concentration. (laughs) Notice anything? (laughs) This is one of the factors of awakening. And it's an essential part of our practice, at least to some degree. And hopefully mm, I can be a little more clear about this as I go along. It's essential to some degree in terms of being able to see clearly enough to understand deeply enough for a liberating wisdom to arise. This morning, I shared a few words from the Thai meditation teacher, Ajahn Chah, and I will again tonight in this talk. I so appreciate his um, explanation of the Dharma in terms of very ordinary, sort of daily life, concrete things. So what I'm going to share with you is from a collection of similes called A Tree in the Forest. This is called Light Switch and Bowl. It is necessary to have concentration firmly established in our practice before wisdom can arise. To concentrate the mind can be likened to turning on a light switch and wisdom to the light that appears as a result. If there were no switch, there would be no light. Likewise, concentration is like an empty bowl. And wisdom is like the food that you put in it. If there were no bowl, there would be no place to put the food. So concentration is a piece of our practice. It's an important piece, along with mindfulness, along with a heart of loving-kindness. And we know that without any concentration at all, our mindfulness is what I've heard Joseph Goldstein call more or less mindfulness. You know, where we're sort of aware, (laughs) but only sort of. So often in our lives, we're not really um, cultivating concentration or uh, maybe not necessarily... uh, supporting it or nourishing it in our lives. I think so often, uh, for many of us, in a lot of different ways, life in the world can be full of distractedness. And I think one of the really obvious examples of this, um, although perhaps some would argue, (laughs) and maybe they're right, Uh, that it's a different kind of concentration. Uh, But I'm thinking of multitasking, you know, how we rarely do one thing at a time anymore. We're, you know, either 
talking on the phone while we're driving or texting while we're driving. (laughs) This is uh, kind of unimaginable to me. I can't even talk on a cell phone while driving, let alone try to dial a number. I just don't know how people do it. They're perhaps more advanced (laughs) than I am. But in so many other ways, just think about all the distractions in our lives. I know I spend a lot of time while driving listening to the radio. This is where I get my world news, listening to NPR in the car. And it can become a kind of habit. I turned it off on the way here tonight for the talk (laughs) to be more concentrated. So we listen to the radio, we watch TV, we read papers. You know, maybe we watch, I think it's possible on some TVs to like watch different things all at the same time, (laughs) like a fragmented screen. You know, and maybe we're reading a few different newspapers or magazines and just all this input. It's both wonderful in a way, that connectedness with each other and the world that's possible these days. But it's also hugely distracting, potentially. And I don't mean at all to be implying that there's anything inherently wrong with any of these uh, opportunities or modalities. But just to notice how much we're uh, taking in and paying attention to. uh, And that sense of often being incredibly overstimulated in our lives. And those are only kind of the tip of the iceberg of the external distractions. Then there's the whole realm of internal distractions. That internal mental energy that just can (laughs) go berserk. You know, that can just run wild in so many different directions. How often are we, for example, rehashing past events, going over and over something, you know, maybe even changing it as we remember it, manipulating the details, what if it had been this way, or imagining the future, what will I do next when I leave here, or how will that be to leave here, or what will I tell people about this retreat, or (laughs) you know how it goes, just... Endless speculation about the future, some imagined future. Or the way that we tell ourselves stories, the, what I referred to this morning as the narrative of I. I can remember on one retreat being quite uh, aware that, at least for me on that retreat, it seemed like every thought was self-referenced. It was all somehow about me. It's incredible. (laughs) So we tell ourselves all these stories, some of which maybe are true, and much of which is fabrication or speculation. Or maybe we're the type to consider a situation and then consider it over and over and over and over, sort of chew on it, plan or review. Same thing. It's just amazing the amount of energy that goes into that. That's a lot of energy that might otherwise be available for seeing clearly. And it's dissipated. It's spent in these activities that aren't necessarily conducive to our greatest good or our highest happiness (laughs) or even to being aware that we're sitting here (laughs) in the present moment. So I have a proposal for you. Rather than 
thinking of concentration as something uh, elusive, something that would be far-reaching for us, something hard to attain, one could begin to consider it as something quite a bit simpler than what we're normally doing with all that chasing after, you know, mental activity, mental proliferation. Quite a bit simpler. What if we think of concentration not as some kind of superpower available only to a few, but as a simple lack of distractedness? Lack of distractedness. That can be such a gift in our lives in ways that we may not even know. From our our friend Henry David Thoreau, he said, There were times when I could not afford to sacrifice the bloom of the present moment, to any work, whether of head or hands. Sometimes, in a summer morning, having taken my accustomed bath, I sat in my sunny doorway from sunrise till noon, amidst the pines and hickories and sumacs, in undisturbed solitude, and stillness, while the birds sang around. I grew in those seasons like corn in the night, and they were far better than any work of the hands would have been. They were not times subtracted from my life, but so much over and above my usual allowance. just sitting in a doorway amidst the trees in the sun, fully present, feeling that to be this time of growth and preciousness. Thoreau, I think, is describing an experience of cohesion, of wholeness, rather than being fragmented, scattered energetically. So how do we cultivate concentration? I'd like to share with you two um, approaches to it that have been particularly helpful for me in my practice. Two ways, perhaps, of uh, holding or thinking about the development of concentration. And the first is as the art of letting go. So noticing the distractions, the thoughts, the stories, that they arise, that they pull us away from whatever object we're directing our attention to, such as the breath. And then just letting go of that distraction, letting go of that thought or that story. It sounds so simple. (laughs) For me, this was a really important shift in practice. Because in the early years of practice, I earnestly, sincerely was attempting 
to develop some concentration. And I was a little, I think, overzealous in my energy. So there was a way that when I would notice that I was distracted, I would yank my attention back. It seemed to be at the time that felt like what was needed, like I had to yank it back and try to fix it to the present moment. But I felt it didn't take, thankfully, too long, (laughs) a few years maybe, to notice the stress in that, the lack of ease in that, the struggle, and even to some degree the violence in that approach, that habitual sort of yanking back to the present moment. And my big discovery at some point was the realization that I didn't have to do it that way that there was another approach. And that was simply to recognize when I was distracted and then actually make the practice about the letting go rather than the getting back to the object. So I became quite interested in how I could most The word that came to my mind at the time was gracefully let go. Rather than this sort of forceful disconnect from something to get back to something else. Just recognizing where I'd gone, that I was lost, a thought, a story, whatever. And then let it go. Let it go with ease. And when one lets go, one is back. One is in the present moment. It's not necessary to be trying to force that. It follows naturally, the letting go. This was some years ago that I had that uh, realization that seemed to be uh, important in terms of working with concentration. But I can say that it continues to deepen. It continues to uh, be alive for me in my practice. In a recent retreat in January, my entire emphasis was on relaxation. For whatever reason, I didn't kind of plan it, it just sort of happened that way. And it was surprisingly um, effective. (laughs) So I invite you to experiment with that. What would it mean to relax in the present moment? Relax into the present moment. Relaxing tension, stress, holding in the body. What's there? Maybe the next breath. Relaxing the mind. The running off of the mind. The thinking mind. Pursuing this or that interesting thought. Just relaxing that. What happens? It seems to me that there's a very important relationship between a very intentional relaxation and concentration. In a way, what we're doing there is letting go of everything else everything that isn't present moment awareness. So that's one attitude in terms of practicing, developing concentration, this art of letting go, which is relaxing. You know, letting go, it's a relaxing thing not to hold on, not to pursue, not to chase. 
not to try too hard. Another attitude is to appreciate, in a way, the, the gift of starting over. If there's one thing that we do a lot in meditation practice, it's start over, begin again. I think, to a large degree, it's what meditation is in many ways. So rather than focusing on the fact that we have been distracted for however long, a moment, several moments, an hour, three days, it doesn't matter. Rather than focusing on that fact and then adding judgments or self-doubt or self-recrimination to that, to the fact that we've been lost, appreciating that moment of beginning again. That's all we need to do. That letting go, beginning again. The moment is fresh. Each moment is fresh. We don't have to carry that history of how long we've been lost or where we went or what it means about us, that speculation. I think this is quite an important gift of practice, learning that, developing that ability, that trust, actually, in beginning beginning again. And it carries quite nicely into life, daily life, and practice, daily life practice. So the times that we suddenly find ourselves in reactivity in life, maybe in a work situation, or in a relationship with a partner or a child. I can say that this served me really well when I was engaged with a teenager at home as a step-parent. There were times when I could feel myself recoil or react or take something personally. And sometimes there was enough mindfulness to recognize that and just let go and begin again in that moment and potentially take a whole different track, one uh, more conducive to Uh, at least my (laughs) well-being, hopefully others as well. So it's a real gift, this uh, trust in starting over, beginning again. It's important to know that we have that choice. And every time we do it, on the cushion or in our walking practice or throughout the course of the day, you know, in our formal practice, we're reinforcing that option, that choice, that we can begin again, that we don't have to go down some particular path because we've started there, or even if we've gone down that path many steps. (laughs) We can let go, we can begin again, perhaps take an entirely different path, It's never too soon, and it's never too late to begin again. Letting go or starting over in our lives when we notice tension or stress in the body or negativity in the mind, reactiveness, doesn't mean that we're becoming dull, disconnected, or passive. I think sometimes this can be a a misinterpretation or a misunderstanding. 
It just means that with a little more clarity, we can make a choice. Perhaps a wiser choice, a more skillful choice. It might still mean that we take some kind of strong action when called for. But not so much out of a place of reactivity. So these attitudes in practice, in the practice of concentration, I think are really important. And I would encourage you to investigate your own attitudes around concentration. And if these particular suggestions don't feel helpful, see if you can find ones for yourself that do. Where is it difficult? What might help? Perhaps the idea of the art of letting go? Perhaps the idea of that gift of starting over? There are a lot of benefits to concentration. As it develops, Energetically, there's this sense of cohesiveness, wholeness, integration. It's the energy coming together that's normally so diffuse. And there's a lot of power in that. The integration of mind is experienced as peace, stillness, collectedness, steadiness, calm. And there's a more uh, powerful focus when the energy is integrated like that in the mind. I remember on a retreat many years ago, a monk who was teaching told me that uh, the difference between a mind with some concentration and a mind without, mindfulness without, is like the difference between a flashlight, sort of looking with a flashlight, and maybe it's even got weak batteries, so the light maybe is a little dim, or maybe it even blinks on and off. (laughs) That's the mind without concentration. And then the mind that's concentrated, where that energy is collected and focused, it's more like a laser beam when it's really focused. It's penetrating. So we see that much more clearly. There's energy available for seeing what's arising. It's said that concentration is the proximate cause for wisdom to arise. It takes a collected mind to see clearly the characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, selflessness, these doorways to a liberating understanding. We might understand them on some level, but you know when we're really seeing them, the mind is somewhat concentrated to really see them clearly, to get them personally, in our own experience. A concentrated mind is also protected. It's resting in that peace and stillness. It's protected from the torments of the hindrances. It's not that they're uprooted, but they can be suppressed by a concentrated mind. And that can be very helpful at times. It helps the energy to build, the confidence to grow, our commitment to be strong, to keep going, 
These are important qualities in practice. Of course, there are also pitfalls or traps in our relationship to concentration. And I think the, uh, maybe the biggest one uh, is striving, is that out-of-balance energy. You know, and that's partly what I was talking about in my own experience of that effortful uh, trying to reconnect with the present moment by yanking the attention back. Sometimes I can feel hesitant, cautious, even about mentioning (laughs) concentration to yogis. It's funny because it's such a part of our practice to some degree. It's necessary. But we can so easily slip into this uh, drive to excel, to succeed to accomplish or achieve in our practice. And I think we also tend to uh, veer more towards thinking of concentration in terms of some kind of superpower rather than this much more accessible, quite simple lack of distractedness. So we think if we're going for this superpower, you know, it's going to take a lot of work and we don't know if we're up to it. It's a high aim. And it's a trap because we try and we try and we try and all we notice is, no, I'm just totally distracted. I can't concentrate. My mind is never concentrated. (laughs) Hardly ever even a moment of mindfulness. It may not be so. That might be one of the stories that you're used to telling yourself. I thought maybe that this talk should be called Everyday Concentration. (laughs) Ordinary Folks Concentration. We all have it. I know we do. You know, to varying degrees for each of us and for each of us throughout the course of a day. But you wouldn't be able to sit here and do what you're doing without some of it. So if you find that you're the type that uh, A has this disbelieving relationship to even the idea of being concentrated, or B, has the tendency to think that it takes an enormous amount of effort. You might want to challenge that a little, experiment a little. See if you can remember to let go, start over, relax into being more fully present which is another way of saying being concentrated. Please try this. It's worthy of experimentation. So that's one sort of pitfall (laughs) with concentration is that tendency to go at it with an imbalanced energy. Another is there's the potential to get attached. Attached to different aspects of a concentrated mind when it does arise, when it is a part of our experience. There's a certain sort of refinement of attention, sort of refinement of experience when the mind is quite collected. And maybe we like that. Maybe we find that even uh, blissful, quite pleasant. And if the hindrances aren't around, that's pretty nice. (laughs) That can be easy to get attached to. 
So it's really uh, important to notice that. That can be a trap, a kind of detour in practice. If we think that that refinement of a concentrated mind or that peace of a collected mind is the goal. It isn't. It's a byproduct of concentration, but it's not the goal. And it can be easy to get caught there. And I think I experience some of this in my own practice. I remember this one uh, time when I was sitting next door on a long retreat. And um, at that time, I was experimenting with listening to the inner sound, which uh, I have, (laughs) tinnitus, (laughs) it's also called. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, I have a kind of ringing in my ears that began when I was a teenager, and it, you know, for some time bothered me, and you know, I tried to get rid of it, and I had it checked out, and, you know, everybody said, nothing's wrong with your ears. And, and then I heard someone say once, well, you can use that, you know, as a meditation object. So I was experimenting with that at one point in my practice, and I really got concentrated with it. Very uh, one-pointed and absorbed, and everything else kind of faded away. It was as though the body and the room and everything faded and there was just the sound, being with the sound. And it was pleasant. So I went to my next interview with Joseph and reported that I'd gotten very concentrated and you know, I a little proudly told him about my experience. And he, he looked at me and he said, well, that's fine, but there's not a lot of wisdom in it. And it was so funny to me. It was totally true. I mean, I didn't take it as a, a judgment, and it wasn't offered in that way. It was, you know, very accepting and acknowledging, oh, well, that's, that's fine. But if that's all you do with it, <laughs> there's not a lot of wisdom in that. I have another little Ajahn Chah story along those same lines. This one's called Garbage Pit. (laughs) If your mind becomes quiet and concentrated, it is an important tool to use. But if you're sitting just to get concentrated so you can feel happy and pleasant, then you're wasting your time. The practice is to sit and let your mind become still and concentrated, and then to use that to examine the nature of the mind and body, to see more clearly. Otherwise, if you make the mind simply quiet, then for that time it's peaceful and there's no defilement. But this is like taking a stone and covering up a smelly garbage pit. (laughs) When you take the stone away, it's still full of smelly garbage. (laughs) You must use your concentration not to temporarily bliss out, but to accurately examine the nature of the mind and body. This is what actually frees you. So Joseph actually said it in a very friendly way. (laughs) There's not much wisdom in it. (laughs) He could have said, you're covering up a garbage pit. (laughs) So we need to remember this, that we're cultivating concentration, developing that collectedness of mind in order to see clearly, in order to understand more deeply, in order to free the mind and heart.
I have a list of 11 suggestions. This is from the commentaries. These are ways to arouse concentration. They seem to be almost more like supports for concentration, but you can decide. (laughs) Number one, cleanliness of body and environment. It's said that a clean environment helps the mind to become bright and clear. So you can sort of appreciate doing your yogi job here, (laughs) that you're contributing to this clean environment in support of the brightening of our minds, the deepening of concentration. I remember when I heard this one, I was quite pleased because I kind of like a clean environment (laughs) and I felt like it was fuel. (laughs) But it's supportive of my concentration. (laughs) I must have a clean house. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) so that's number one. Number two, a balanced mind. Having a proper balance between wisdom and faith and energy and concentration. Number three, having a clear mental image or skillfulness with one's meditation object. So it would be a mental image if one is perhaps doing metta and using that mental image of the being. But having skillfulness with with your meditation object, maybe the body or the breath. Number four, uplifting the discouraged mind. This is important. And sometimes we forget that it's necessary. Number five, calming the over-enthusiastic mind. This is a favorite of mine. (laughs) Not getting too excited or indulging in it. One of my... uh, mental notes that I coined in order to not get caught in that trap of over-enthusiasm was special effects that sometimes when concentration would come, you know, things would be more bright or more clear or, you know, dazzling or whatever, how they would be different. And I liked that. And (laughs) I would get attached to that. And I would think that was the goal, which is completely a trap. So over time, I started to learn this and see and calm the over-enthusiastic mind. And I would just note, oh, special effect, special effect. And it really helped. It wasn't dismissive, but it was truthfully acknowledging. Yeah, it's sort of a special effect of concentration. Number six, cheering the mind that's withered by pain. What does that mean for us, enlivening the mind, encouraging ourselves to continue? Maybe it's some kind of dhamma reflection. Maybe listening to a talk or a little bit of reading, something to rekindle our enthusiasm for practice. For me, often cheering the mind that's withered by pain is accomplished through taking in the beauty of the natural world. It's quite a beautiful night if you haven't seen the stars and the moon tonight. Number seven, continuous balanced awareness. So keeping on going, and this is important particularly in in the times when there is some momentum in practice and there's that kind of effortless effort going on. We can kind of get on cruise control and then forget to keep applying ourselves to keep beginning again, to keep reconnecting. And it'll it'll change, it'll, you know, fade. So continuous continuous awareness. Number eight, and these next two I think are uh, more relevant perhaps in our in our lives out in the world, avoiding the distracted, people who are neither calm nor peaceful, agitated people, when possible. Number nine, choosing friends who are focused. Number 10, reflecting on the peace of absorption. So just remembering that state of peace. 
that comes with one-pointedness. And number 11, inclining the mind. Being persistent in inclining the mind toward developing concentration. And again, in a gentle way, in as balanced a way as you can, perhaps in a way of really relaxing into it, but inclining the mind there over and over again, not giving up. So please notice your relationship to concentration. Notice the times when it arises, when it's there in your practice, when it's strong, when it's weak. Give yourself a lot of permission to experiment with how best you can align with it or uh, support it, nourish it. Finally, I'd like to close with um, a story. I thought about sharing a story about Sariputta and Moggallana, but it's a bit more of a story about superpower concentration. (laughs) So given that this talk is really about everyday kind of concentration, I'll tell you one of my own experiences, but I'll just have to remember it because here we go. Um, There was a time when I was practicing and I was walking the loop. And when I got around the backside of the loop, it must have been spring because I think this is when this happens. This was some years ago, so I don't remember exactly. But I came to this place on the road where there was a tree that was absolutely filled with starlings, these kind of large birds that make a lot of uh, sweet, chattery, chirpy sound, and they cluster in these large groups and, you know, can just cover a whole tree. So I was pretty concentrated as I was walking, you know, pretty steady, pretty focused, and then suddenly, you know, a tree filled with these birds just chattering away and I just stopped and uh, really took it in and it was quite delightful so there was this uh, happiness that rose this energetic bubbly you know delighted happiness and fortunately there was enough mindfulness to notice my tendency to want to hold on to that delighted, you know, bright, sparkly energy. And I thought, oh, okay, there's that tendency to get over-enthusiastic. Maybe, and I noticed that, that with that energy of enthusiasm, it's a kind of, uh, the energy's going out, uh, it's bubbling over. And I thought, hmm, you know, can I kind of use that energy to keep looking, to, you know, just sort of contain it, not negate it or squash it, but turn it in and just keep going with my practice. So um, that's what I did. And uh, as I collected the energy and began to walk on, my mindfulness was heightened just enough by that collecting of that energy to notice that I was about to step into this area in the road that was absolutely covered with the droppings of those hundreds of starlings. (laughs) So in a moment of wisdom, I saw where I was headed and, you know, took a deviation in the path to uh, keep (laughs) cleanliness of feet. And I offer that story because it's so... (laughs) simple 
it's so basic, but it's also potentially, you know, another one of those sort of good metaphors for practice, you know, that we can gather the energy if there's the over-enthusiasm to see more clearly and maybe have a choice and maybe it will be something even more important and uh, impactful in our lives than it would have been for me to step into the bird droppings. Anyway, may it be so for you. <laughs> Let's sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.